0: Again, as well, uh, I've done three sermons on Isaiah 40, and so now I've jumped ahead to Isaiah 45. So uh, it is a wonderful book, Isaiah. But before we begin, let us speak with our Lord and ask for His help. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before You this morning as sinners in great need of Your mercy. Uh, We pray that You will help me this morning to to be able to proclaim your word clearly and truthfully that what I say will not be my words but it will be your words and that it will impact upon the hearts of those present here this morning. We all recognise that uh, we need your Holy Spirit in abundance to understand what you have to say and we pray that you will give us much of your Holy Spirit this morning and that he will enlighten our minds and bring uh, light to our hearts as well so that we can serve you better. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking a question. Do you like to be in control? Do you like to have control? I like to have control, particularly in some parts of, of life, like uh, when I drive. I, I like to be the one that's driving if, there's, if Jill and I are in the car together. I like to be the one that's behind the wheel. Uh, Jill drives me to the station on some mornings and that's okay. But if we're going on an extended trip, I, I like to be the one that's in control. Uh, I like to also be in control with the remote control for the for the TV as well. I, uh, I like to, I like to have that in my hand, and uh, I, particularly when you're fast forwarding DVDs and things like that, you know, uh, you've got to be you know, you've got to know what you're doing, and so you got to you've got to be in control. So I like to be in control, and it's something that we admire in people that they have control. We admire parents that have control of their children, and we admire leaders in the workplace that have control of the workplace. We admire politicians that have control of the areas that they've been given to look after in society. Having control is seen to be a good thing and an admirable thing. But there's certain parts of life that we don't have control and we are scared of those parts of life. For me, at the moment, something that's really impressed upon me is that I don't have control of the exam paper that is coming up very rapidly. And so that really stresses me that I don't know exactly what questions will be on there. I have a bit of an idea, but I don't know exactly what's going to be there. I have no absolute control over that exam paper. And so that stresses me and so I put more and more effort into my studies so that I am able to have a little bit more control than than, uh, I would if I didn't do as much study. I like to have control. This passage that we're looking at today in Isaiah 45 is a clear statement about God's control and whether God is in control of the world and whether, where his control ends, whether it ends at all or whether it is uh, in complete control, that God is in complete control, that he is sovereign. And... So that's what we're looking at today is Isaiah 45. If you've got the text there before you, it'd be good to have it open. And so my first main point then is, how do we know God is in control? From this passage, how do we know God is in control of people on the earth or the earth as a whole? How do we know? Well, it's spelt out in a number of ways in this passage. Firstly, we see that God is in control because he can predict the future. He can predict what's going to happen. God has previously made uh, quite cutting statements at other religions in Isaiah. He's made quite cutting statements about them that they aren't able to predict the future. And the idols that people have, they can't accurately predict the future. If you go back into Isaiah chapter 44, just a, a couple of verses earlier... It says in Isaiah chapter 44 verse 24, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. God is unlike the other gods of the nations, he is able to predict the future. He is able to predict the future accurately and to fill the future. And here he is showing that he can do this by saying in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 1, he's making a prediction about a foreign ruler called Cyrus. He is saying, this guy Cyrus is going to be and this is what he's going to do. I'm criticising these other gods as not being able to predict the future. Now I'm going to show you that I, as God, have complete control over the future because I can predict it accurately. And so he mentions this guy called Cyrus. Now who was Cyrus? Well, Cyrus was a Persian ruler and he was the person who basically uh, got the Persians and the Medes to join into one kingdom, form the Persian Empire, and then he went conquering different kingdoms. So he was raised up and he went through conquering different kingdoms and eventually he conquered the Babylonian Empire as well. So he took over the Babylonian Empire. And when he took over the Babylonian Empire, it was at that stage in Israelite history when the Jews were in exile to Babylon. So in Jewish history, you start off with David and then it breaks up into two parts, the kingdoms. One part of the kingdom ends up in Assyria and the Assyrians come and conquer it and they disperse the people, uh, well pretty much wipe them out. There's not many left of them together. altogether. The kingdom of Judah continues for a while, the other split of the uh, Davidic kingdom. It splits, it keeps going for a while and then it is taken over by Babylon. The sin just gets too much and God sends in the Babylonian empire to take them out. And the people are taken away to exile in Babylon itself. And while they're in Babylon, then Cyrus comes and conquers the Babylonian empire. So Cyrus is an important figure in Israelite history because he is the one who comes and conquers the Babylonian Empire when the Israelites are there. And God is saying here that this guy Cyrus is going to come. The interesting thing is is that God is saying this over a hundred years before Cyrus was even born. He wasn't even born at this stage and the Persian Empire was this little kingdom off in the middle of nowhere that wasn't a threat to anyone but God is saying, look, you want to see an accurate prediction of the future? Here's one. I'm going to predict that this guy Cyrus is going to come. You guys haven't even been taken into exile yet, but you will be, and this guy Cyrus will come and rescue you. And I can predict the future so accurately that I can do it by using this guy's name. Because it's all very well to make a prediction that you know, this kingdom is going to be destroyed by another kingdom and sort of put it in sort of ambiguous." Um, amb- have ambiguity there about which kingdom is going to be. You just say a kingdom in general will come along. I could make a prediction that Australia is going to be dominated by some kingdom in the future and not really be very specific about it. And then later on people could look back, oh yes, yes, uh, that king- it was said that a kingdom would come and destroy. But God is saying, I do this by name. I can predict the future so accurately that I can predict the person's name that's going to come and do it. And he emphasises that he's going to do it by... um, He emphasises the name. He actually mentions the name of Cyrus in uh, verse 28 of the previous chapter and he does it here in 45 verse 1. And then he says that I'm going to do it by name in verse 3. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord the god of israel who summons you by name and then in verse 4 for the sake of jacob my servant of israel my chosen i summon you by name this is something quite extraordinary that he is saying in the future this guy is going to come and rescue you guys and i know exactly what his name is going to be i know what his his parents are going to call him and that's quite something remarkable because there's so many baby names out there. We're at the moment looking through uh, books of <laughs> baby names and it, it, it's quite random as to what we'll eventually pick. But God knows exactly what Cyrus's parents are going to call him. And this causes major problems for people who examine the text of the Bible. Isaiah 40-66 uh, to 66 is seen to be written by uh, another person than Isaiah. It's often viewed that way because... It predicts so accurately, this is one of the reasons, it predicts so accurately who is going to do it. So they think, Isaiah couldn't have written this over a hundred years before it actually happened. It had to be written by someone who had seen it happen, that had known that Cyrus ended up conquering the Babylonian Empire. It had to be written by that by someone else. It could not have been written by Cyrus. And some people say, oh well, this text is actually written by Isaiah but someone's inserted, another scribe has inserted the name Cyrus there into the text. But no, it's, in the, it's got great reliability as being part of the text and really it's just showing that people can't believe that God can predict the future so accurately, that God has such control over the future that he can know that this guy Cyrus is going to come and be the conqueror of Babylon. So we can see that God controls the world in that he can predict the future so accurately with predicting Cyrus' name. But he also goes on to say that he is in control in a number of other ways as well. Not only that he predicts the future, but that he fulfills the future. That God is part of the future being fulfilled, that he's in control of the future. Because he talks about what Cyrus will do, but he doesn't say Cyrus will do it, he says I will do it. And this goes on through the passage. We see it in 45 verse 1. It says, This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of. God says, I take hold of Cyrus's right hand. And that is a statement that I am in control. Because taking hold of someone's right hand can mean a few things. Of course it can mean just intimate fellowship like we shake right hands with people today. We say you know, we're, we're, we're on a friendly terms with them, we take them by the right hand and give them a shake and that's something that uh, we see in the New Testament where Paul is accepted by the other apostles. They, they extend to him the right hand of fellowship. But you can also take the right hand of someone in a sense to lead them, to guide them. And the right hand, of course, is the hand that is generally the strongest. Of course you have the, what do you call them, kanky-handed people, you know, left-handed people. But the right hand is generally the strong hand, isn't it? And so he's taking Cyrus's strong arm, the, the strength of Cyrus, and he's guiding it, he's leading it, just as you would lead a blind man. You take hold of them and you, you show them the way to go God is said to be in complete control of Cyrus here because he is taking hold of his right hand. And when he takes hold of the right hand, what does he do with that right hand of Cyrus? He says that he, he doesn't just take hold of it to do uh, some little obscure things. He says in 45 verse 1, "...whose right hand I take hold of to subdue the nations before him." When Cyrus conquers these nations it's not going to be Cyrus conquering them really. It's going to be God there holding on to the right hand and conquering the nations, subduing the nations before Cyrus and to strip kings of their armour. The way that's worded in the Hebrew, it says to, to loosen the loins of the kings and so it's generally seen to be, in yeah, the, the translation of the NIV there, to strip kings of their armour, it'd be cutting off the, the, the armour belt of the person. So you strip away their armour, you cut off the belt so you're loosening the loins and so their clothing's falling down and they get entangled if they don't have their belt on anymore. So he's, he's loosening the armour of kings but God's doing that Or it could be of course that uh, not just stripping off armour but that when you take away the armour of of a king then of course you're taking away their kingship. When they lose their army they aren't much at all anymore and so when he takes away their armour he's not just uh, taking away their army but he's also stripping the king of his royal throne and that's what Cyrus did. He went and he conquered kingdoms and took away their armies and took away the throne from their rulers. And then uh, God doesn't stop there. It says that he takes hold of his right hand to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. So God is opening the doors before Cyrus. Just as you, uh, a gentleman will open a door before a woman, this guy in God is opening the door for Cyrus. He's the one doing the hard work. He's the one taking control of the situation. God is in complete control of Cyrus here. But he also uh, doesn't just say that he takes hold of his right hand and does this, we see in the text that God is also in control in the fact that he goes before Cyrus. He goes ahead of him. We see it in verse 2. I will go before you. And what does God go before him to do? And will level the mountains. God goes before Cyrus to level the mountains. Now the word there, mountain, uh, there's a bit of uncertainty with the Hebrew for that word and if you've got an NIV there, it'll have a footnote going down to the bottom. Uh, to a little number A, and it says Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint. So the, the Greek translation is quite clear that it's the word mountain uh, the meaning of the word in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible, is a bit uncertain there, so uh, it can mean exalted places, so um, sort of high places, so mountains is probably a good word to to translate that there because of course that 's what kings have trouble with when they have their armies. If you come to mountains it 's hard work to get over those and to dominate the the country that you 're coming to and so the the mountains before before Cyrus aren't going to be any problem because God is going before him to level those mountains. Just as in Isaiah 40 we saw that the mountains need to be leveled before God comes. He makes straight the path and levels the mountains and low places will be exalted and high places will be brought down. So it is with Cyrus. The mountains will be brought down. So the hard work of overcoming the mountains will be overcome by God. And overcoming mountains is difficult. Whenever you go on hikes, they always seem to pick mountains to go up. That's why I don't like going on hikes. And it's hard work. But God will go before Cyrus and take away the mountains, that they won't be a problem for him. And he continues, I will go before you, it says in verse 2, I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. So he's going back to those gates again and he's saying the bronze gates, the really strong gates, I will go through and I will break them down before you and cut through the bars of iron. Now some people actually see this as literally fulfilled when Cyrus conquered Babylon because Herodotus, an ancient uh, historian, actually said that he wrote of Babylon, in the circuit of the wall are a hundred gates, all of brass. So some people say, oh, well, there we go. Herodotus has said that there were bronze gates in Babylon in the walls. So here we see it literally being predicted that this is what Cyrus will do. But of course you've got to be a bit careful about jumping to conclusions because a lot of the kingdoms would have had bronze gates and bars of iron. They didn't just have wooden doors, all of them, and and this was the only one with bronze ones. A lot of them would have. So you can't see it literally fulfilled in, in Babylon, but you can see that God is going before Cyrus here in complete control of the situation, breaking down the bronze doors before Cyrus. Cyrus looks like he's doing it, but really God is doing it. He's the one breaking down the bronze doors and the, uh, breaking through, cutting through those bars of iron. And God is also in control there, we see, not just by going before and not just by holding the right hand, but in verse 3 he gets on to money. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places. And the a saying that money is the sinews of war. If you go to war, you need cash. And this would have been a, a particular dilemma for Cyrus because uh, the Persian Empire was very small when he got hold of it and it didn't have a lot of cash uh, with itself so he would have had difficulty raising up uh, money for his campaign. But God says here, I've got cash. I'm in complete control of the world. I have the power to give you cash. And so he says here, I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places. Where the money come from? Well, of course, God gives it to Cyrus uh, when he conquers the kingdoms. That's the most uh, appropriate interpretation of this, that the treasures of darkness and riches stored in secret places are those treasures that are accumulated by kingdoms and stored and housed in secret and dark rooms that have large amounts of gold in these dark rooms. And that's what Cyrus did. As he conquered kingdom after kingdom... He got more and more cash from these uh, kingdoms. One of the kingdoms that he conquered was Lydia and it was actually said that Croesus, king of Lydia, the the king of that area, he was the richest of all men at the time and there's estimates of how much money he actually had and in the 1800s one commentator tried to work out how much cash Croesus had and it came to 126 million pounds. So in the 1800s he tried to uh, equivalent, make an equivalent there. So 126 million pounds, it may not seem a lot to us today, uh, that much. Well, it seems a lot to me, but you know, to some people it's not that much. But 126 million pounds back in the 1800s with inflation, you know, that's an awful lot of money that this guy of Lydia had. And God gave that to Cyrus. He said, I'm going to give you money. You're not going to be this poor guy, I'm going to give you cash and it's going to come from treasuries of darkness, from riches stored in secret places. So we see that God is in complete control of, of Cyrus, that God has control of this foreign king. And that's quite a remarkable thing for the Jews to hear, that God has control of a foreigner, that God has control of a foreign king. Because the influence of all the thinking of the religions of the day would have been that, The God that you worship is restricted to the land that you're on. That gods own certain bits of land and when you move to another area you've got to start worshipping the God from that land because the God that you used to worship doesn't have any control there anymore. But here God is saying, the God of the Jews is saying, I have control of a guy over in a completely different empire, an empire that's of no significance at the moment, the guy that hasn't even been born. I have complete control of him and I'm going to bring him and bring salvation to you guys. He's going to conquer Babylon. I am in complete control. So this passage is quite a good declaration of God's sovereignty. And that was my first main point. How do we know God is in control? And I think it's quite clear from the text. The second main point is, why does God show he's in control? Why does God reveal his sovereignty? Why does God want to make clear, I am in control of the world? Well, it's spelled out for us in the text in a couple of, uh, and there's a couple of reasons given to us. And uh, they're translated, uh, it's the same word in the Hebrew is translated and it can mean purpose or it can mean cause. And it occurs three times in the text and so they're good little words to to spot uh, that they're translated to show the purpose of something or the cause of something. And the first one is in verse 3. It says, I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that, whenever you see a so that in the Bible, take note because it's showing purpose. It's showing that there is a purpose to something coming previously. Why does God give him all that cash? Why does God go before him? So that you may know that I am the Lord. The first reason that God reveals his sovereignty is so that Cyrus will acknowledge God so that you may know that I am the Lord. The fact is, Cyrus didn't know God. Of course, the God of the Israelites is worshipped in a very sort of particular area, and it wasn't taken, the name of God wasn't taken out all over the place as we see it today with missionaries. It was restricted to an area, so Cyrus would have grown up with his own sort of gods, and he takes on the Babylonian gods when he conquers that area. And we know that he doesn't know God because it says it quite a few times in the text. In verse 4, For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honour, though you, that's Cyrus, do not acknowledge me. And then in verse 5, he spells it out again. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Cyrus quite clearly did not know God, did not acknowledge God. But God reveals his sovereign control, so that Cyrus would know that God is God and that there is none like him. Was this fulfilled? Did Cyrus actually end up knowing God? Well, of course he comes into contact with the, the Israelite God when he comes into contact with the Israelites. And If you read Ezra chapter 1, you can see Cyrus uh, interacting with the Jews there. And It's actually recorded that Cyrus read this particular prophecy A historian called Josephus, much later on from this period, but a historian nonetheless, sometimes he's a bit dodgy and so you're not always sure how reliable he is. But uh, this is what he says. He says, This prophecy was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. For this prophet, that is Isaiah, said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, will send back my people to their own land and build my temple. This was foretold, this is Josephus, by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this prophecy and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. So he called for the most eminent Jews that were in Babylon and said to them that he gave them permission to go back to their own country and to rebuild their city of Jerusalem. So here we have a historian saying that it was actually read by Cyrus and that he acknowledged the God of the Israelites. and And so this prophecy was fulfilled that God revealed his sovereign control so that Cyrus would know. And here we have from Josephus an account that he did actually read this. And if if this isn't true, we know at least that he did know of the God of the Jews in sending the Jews back because he had so much contact with the Jews. So we see that uh, the first reason that God reveals his sovereignty is so that Cyrus would acknowledge him, so that Cyrus would know him. But there's another purpose clause here as well. It's not just so that Cyrus would know him. We see it in verse but I'll start in verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other, apart from me there is no God, I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged me, so that, little purpose clause, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting men may know there is none besides me, I am the Lord and there is no other. What is the reason that God reveals his sovereign control? Why is God doing this with Cyrus? It's so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know. Not just so that Cyrus would know God and acknowledge that this God of the Jews is an important person or an important God and that I should add him to my, the worship of my other gods, so that all men would know from the rising of the sun to where it sets. Now that's not a statement of course about whether the world is flat or round. You know, Some people would seize on that and say, look, you know, you know Christians are silly, you know, but it's just a, a, a statement about, where, uh, about who will acknowledge God. And it's saying everyone, from where the sun rises to where the sun sets, everyone, the entire world will know. And that's a, a, a theme that's taken up in other areas. Psalm 113 has that, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. You know, that song that you sing in um, scripture, have you ever seen that? From the rising of the sun... Ch-ch-ch-ch. He's a going down of the same, the Lord's name. Yeah. So it's a very good illustration for everyone will acknowledge God. That is why God is revealing his sovereignty. That is why God is controlling Cyrus, is so that everyone will know that God is God, that God is God and there is no other. I am the Lord and there is no other. That is why God is in control, so that everyone will know who God is. Now, was this prophecy fulfilled in that day? Has it been fulfilled? Well, of course, you know, a lot of people would have known about the God of the Jews through this prophecy and over the centuries as people have looked at this, they've uh, seen again and again Christians have come to know God and, and to have their faith infirmed in God as they read over this prophecy. But of course we see that there's lots of people who do not acknowledge God as the God and there is no another. I wouldn't have to go very far on the streets in Des Moines and talk to someone and say, do you acknowledge that there is no other God except the God of the Jews, the Lord himself? I wouldn't have to go very far. So has this prophecy been fulfilled? Has everyone come to know that God is God? Well, no. But it will happen. One day, everyone will acknowledge that God is God. And that's that passage we had read from Philippians chapter 2, speaks of that day. Philippians chapter 2 reads from verse 9, Therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone one day will acknowledge that God is God and there is none other. And God is revealing his sovereignty in dealing with Cyrus here so that that day will actually come about because when Cyrus conquered the Babylonian Empire, he of course set the Jews free. They had been taken from their kingdom and they had been implanted in Babylon and there didn't seem much hope for the Jewish race anymore. But from Cyrus coming and conquering the Babylonians, he then was able to send the Jews back to their land and in that land they prospered and in the little town of Bethlehem, Someone was born who was very important and grew up, died on the cross, was raised to life and here's the one that is spoken in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. So Cyrus is just one step in a chain of events that leads up to that day when Jesus will return and every knee shall bow and everyone will then know From the rising of the sun to the going down, from the rising of the sun to the place of the setting, men may know there is none besides me. This prophecy is yet to be completely fulfilled, but one day it will be. So two reasons given for why God reveals his sovereignty. The first was so that Cyrus would acknowledge and then so that everyone would acknowledge. The other reason is a a causal reason, so it's not a purpose but because, and it's the same word but it's translated in verse 4, for the sake of. So it's giving us a cause. When you see for the sake of, think cause. Why is God revealing this? Because of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen. God is doing this. God is revealing his sovereignty and being in control of, God, of Cyrus for the sake of his people. God isn't doing it just for his own fun and that kind of thing, although he does do it all for his glory. Everything stems back into God's glory. But he is doing it for the sake of his people. God is in control for the sake of his people. He is concerned for his people that are in Babylon. And so he is raising up this ruler, this foreign ruler Cyrus, bringing him along for the salvation of his people. And we know that he has got their salvation in view because a couple of clues in the text, one of course is for the sake of, but there's another clue in 45 verse 1, going back to the first verse, it says, this is what the Lord says to his anointed. That word anointed is very important to, to note. Anointed is generally seen to be someone who helps God's people. You know, people in the Old Testament were often anointed with oil for the particular service of God and they were generally priests, prophets and kings. They were anointed to help God's people. And here we have a king being called anointed as well. But the surprising thing is, of course, is that he's a foreign king. He's not a king of the Jews. He's a foreign king, yet he's still called anointed. This is the only time that a foreigner in the Bible is called the Lord's anointed. And the word anointed, of course, is where we get our word for Messiah from as well. So it's got great connotations there. You should always pay attention to the word anointed. And so we know that God has his people in view and he has their salvation in view. He is bringing his anointed to help them. Cyrus is their anointed. He is coming to help them. And so of course this would have been a great revelation for God's people. They would have then been like Cyrus in acknowledging God, that we need to know that God is God because of course when they were taken from their land and into Babylon they would have feared that God is no longer God, that God is not in control. But here we have a clear text saying I'm going to bring this ruler and he is going to save you and I'm going to do it because of you. My sovereign control over all mankind and over all the world is for your sake. I do it because of you. Not just so that everyone will know me one day, but I do it particularly for you as well, for your sake, for your salvation. So my first main point then was that how do we know God's in control? My second main point was why is he in control? Why does he do things? Why does, he reveal God's, why does God reveal his control? My third and last main point then is, is God still in control? Is God still in control? Because this is a powerful passage saying that God is in control in the Old Testament. God predicted that this would happen over a hundred years before it actually came about. And then it came about and so we know that God was in control then. And many other prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled in in the time of the Old Testament and we see that God is in control then. But did God's control cease at the end of the Old Testament? Did somehow he lose his power then? Well, we go into the New Testament and of course we see there that God's control is there in the New Testament as well. Many, many prophecies given in the Old Testament were fulfilled in the New Testament. God was completely in control in the New Testament as well. And the clearest example of, of someone who fulfils Old Testament prophecies is of course Jesus Christ. Some apologists actually estimate that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That this one guy fulfills over 300 prophecies. How you fulfill over 300 prophecies without any control from God is be, it, it, the, the possibility, is, it's just so improbable. You know, how one guy can do it all. And just for an example of how specific those prophecies can be, uh, there is that Jesus was born of a virgin was predicted, that he would be born at Bethlehem, that he would be both a prophet, priest and king, that he would be portrayed by a close friend, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver that he would be forsaken by his disciples, that he'd be accused by false witnesses, that he'd be struck and spat on, that he would be mocked, that he'd be crucified, and not just crucified on his own, but that he'd be crucified with thieves, that his garments would be divided, that gall and vinegar would be offered to him, that none of his bones would be broken, that his side would be pierced, that darkness would come over the land, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, and that he would be raised to life. Some of those are extremely specific. How would Jesus have control over none of his bones being broken or his side being pierced? So many of those things are beyond human control. They're obviously in God's control. So God's control didn't stop here with Cyrus. It didn't stop in the Old Testament. It extends into the New Testament. God is still quite clearly in control in the New Testament. But did all the prophecies in the Old Testament and the New Testament get fulfilled in that time? Did God's control cease somehow in the New Testament? Well, no. There are many prophecies in the New Testament that are still left unfulfilled. We've touched on one that eventually every knee will bow. But there are many prophecies that haven't been fulfilled. And so what these prophecies in the Old Testament should indicate to us is that when God speaks and says this is going to happen, Make sure you're paying attention because we've seen time and time again when God predicts the future that I am going to do this, he always does it. He always makes sure it comes about. And one prophecy that is told in the New Testament and told in the Old Testament of course is the day of final judgement. And that prophecy hasn't come true yet. We haven't had the final day of judgement. The Bible is quite clear. God predicts that there will one day be a day of final judgment and that some people will be sent to heaven for eternal life and some people will be sent for eternal punishment in hell. And God tells us how we can be on which side. He tells us if we believe in Jesus Christ as payment for our sin, we will go to heaven for eternal life. If we deny Christ, if we do not believe in him and trust in him, we will be sent for eternal punishment in hell. And so we should be paying attention to that. When God prophesies something, as he does here in Isaiah 45, we see it came about. And so we have complete assurance that What he says in the New Testament and in the Old Testament about the Day of Final Judgment, we should know it will come true. And so you cannot afford to risk the fact that you can ignore what God has said about the Day of Final Judgment. He has been proved again and again that he is in complete control of the world and he will be in complete control till the very end and for eternity. Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your saviour? There is a day of final judgement coming and God will bring it about just as surely as he brought Cyrus to the gates of Babylon and destroyed Babylon before Cyrus. Have you believed in Jesus as your saviour? Are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell on that day of final judgement? and be in God's control as uh, as you're eternally punished. God has the power and the control to make sure that you are punished for eternity for not believing in his son. But he also has the power and control to give you eternal paradise for eternity. Believe in Jesus as your saviour. He has prophesied that He that will come and that you need to believe in him. So we see that God prophesies things so that we can know God but we've also got to remember that God is in control and prophesies things for the sake of his people God is still in control of this world he is still around today we don't believe in the god of the Deists. you know there's Deist people and deist religion believes that God was there initially kicked things off started the ball rolling but it's since removed himself from the equation. He's no longer a personal God. He's no longer here in control of things and it's kind of like a watch. You sort of build it and then set it running and it keeps going. And God himself could be actually dead. We don't actually know. Richard Dawkins has recently come out and said, the guy who wrote God Delusion, has come out and said that that's a a fairly plausible uh, explanation, that he'd be quite happy with people being deists because, of course, God is quite removed from everything. Uh, God just got the ball rolling. But no, God is still in control today and he will be in the future as well so that people will know God but also so that he is in control for the sake of his people. We saw that one of the reasons that God is in control there in Isaiah 45 is for the sake of his chosen, for the sake of his people Israel. And we know that in the New Testament God says the same thing again. In Romans 8.28 it says... For uh, for all things work for the good of those who love him. Everything that happens in this world is for you if you love God. He is doing everything for your sake. Never think that God has somehow lost control when something goes wrong in your life and you don't like how, like how things are going. Know that God is working for your good. He is there and helping you all the time. Never think that God is somehow weak and helpless and not able to help you in that certain situation that you are in. Go to God. He is in control and can help you. And he can raise help from the most extraordinary places. The Israelites would never have dreamed, I don't think, that a foreign king would be raised up, called the Lord's anointed and come and help them. And if you read Ezra chapter 1, he's very helpful for those Jews. He sends them back and he says, I'm going to give you money to, so that you can start sacrificing to your God. He is extremely helpful to them. So often as Christians we think, oh, God can only really help us with other Christians and things like that. He's, he's sort of got limits on his control. No, he can raise up help for us from the most remarkable of places. He can raise up help for us from the most notorious non-Christian who we think would never be able to help us in our particular situation. We might have a horrible tyrant of a boss at work and think he could never be used by God to help me. No, we can go to God with complete assurance that he is working for our good in every situation. God's sovereignty is a wonderful truth. I wouldn't want a God who didn't have complete control over everything in the world because I'd have to worship the other God that might have control in that area of life. Our God is the one God who is in complete control of everything and that is a wonderful truth that we should hang on to, particularly when we know that he is in control for our sake. He is in control for our good. He is working for our good at all times. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that wonderful truth that you are in complete control, that you are sovereign over all the world and that you don't just do it uh, for some glory for yourself but that you do it for our sake as well, that you in in your mercy look down upon us and if we love you and trust in you, We know that you are working for our good, that your sovereignty works for our good. Lord, we ask for your help in overcoming our doubt in this regard, in overcoming our mistrust that you are working for our good. So often we are faced with situations where we think you can't be in control of that, that it is too horrible, too too gruesome, too much suffering for you to be in control but we know that you are and that if we believe in you, you are doing it for our good, even though sometimes we do not understand why it happens to us, but that you know why and that it is for our good. And we pray that um, anyone here this morning who does not know that you are in control, that has not trusted in you and your prophecy that one day you will come back to judge the world, that they will read this prophecy of Cyrus and know that you fulfill the future when you predict the future, and that they will fear the future and that judgment day, that they will fear to be cast into eternal punishment in hell, and instead trust that if they believe in you, that they will have eternal life. We pray all of this in your Son's name. Amen.